Kinfolk, happy Sunday. Let us pray. Almighty God, in this time, encourage us and increase our joy, Lord, as we receive your way and your wisdom. Amen. Well, I know I've talked about this with you all uh, before, and I probably should have waited until after uh, this business with the designated pastor vote and all that other stuff has passed, but we, you probably know that when I was a teenager, um, I was a that was bad. <laughs> a bad kid. I'm trying to see if there's any teenagers out there to make sure I watch what I say. No, there's none. Okay, that's good. I was, bad, I was bad and disobedient in just about the most boring and typical way that a white kid growing up in rural America uh, can be bad. I didn't have any excuse for being bad. I was, I think my parents did everything right by the standards. Of, the, of that age. I was their third youngest son. I wasn't spoiled. I was uh, raised with discipline. My father was a military man. Uh, but I was just bad. I hung out with other bad kids and slept through class if I even bothered to show up. I went to gym class twice. On the first day, and the last day, I got a C. That's an indictment of the state of physical education in this country. Anyway, there were three cops uh, in our little village, three uh, sheriff's deputies, and one lawyer. And the lawyer was my dad. So the number of free passes that I was given, and the number of times that... My ride home from, from school was one of those sheriff's deputies old Crown Victorias. The number of times I was frog-marched up the front steps of my own house. Now there were times when my behavior as a teenager was so bad, the magistrates had to get involved. I can think about the hours of community service, juvenile detention, all of those summers wasted doing manual labor. I think eventually that probably most of the adults in my life uh, took a position that I was either totally irredeemable or, in the words of my father, clinically bored. There was a guidance counselor at my high school, but this person refused to talk to me until I agreed to enroll at the uh, alternative high school. But if I, knew that, if I, knew, I knew that if I did that, I'd actually have to show up, because they had a lot of rules at that place. Um, I wasn't a violent kid. I wasn't out bullying or fighting. Uh, I, have a I have a point of violence. Every human being does. But I got in trouble a lot. My dad couldn't reconcile any of this stuff. He served his country in, in, in Vietnam, and he came home. He had enough trouble, I think, in his own head and heart. And I wanted him to respect me. That's what any youngest son wants from their father. I wanted him to respect me, but I'd never done anything to earn his respect. So instead, I had to settle for his love. 
And the love of my father was mercurial. It was hard to read. It wasn't that it was absent. It just, for him and for many of the men of his generation, to show love, especially to show love to a younger boy, uh, a young man, it's to, it means you've got to be vulnerable. And how are you going to be vulnerable with a son who turns his back on everything you've tried to teach him? I remember I was 17 years old. I, uh, he was standing at the top of the stairs. And I was going to head out. It was nighttime. I was going to go out and do whatever the hell I wanted. And he turned to me and he said, From now until you leave this household, you are dead weight. When you get into a place where you are truly the black sheep of your family, no doubts about it, um, I can tell you for those kids, you'd feel like a burden. You, you do. Your siblings have lost all of their patience for you, if you have them. Because you absorb all of your parents' time and energy. You force your siblings to miss out on the attention and affection that maybe they should get. Your delinquent friends are hanging around and they're awful. And you become this emotional boat anchor around everyone's neck, kind of pulling them down. Yeah, it's like dead weight. It was entirely by the mercy of an assistant principal at my high school. This is a man I firmly believed uh, at the time simply wanted to drown me in a horse trough. Um, but he, he found me and he, he managed to get me through school so that I got a diploma. And my parents were professors. They were educators at Western at the university in Kalamazoo. They called in every favor that they'd ever had and they got me enrolled at Western Michigan University. Do you know the number of times I fought so hard to get into that school, the confusion when other people told me it was their fallback school? <laughs> but I got in. They invented a special program for me. It was called Triple Academic Probation. Basically, they said um, for the first three semesters, if you sneeze without covering your mouth, you are out of here. But when I got to college, I did really well. I thrived. Uh, I graduated from Western with, with, with great grades, and I was set up to do well. But uh, I, right, right at that time, my life un completely unraveled. I got married when I was 21 years old. I've, as my, as my mother fondly puts it, it was a starter marriage. No kids, no house. Um, it lasted a little bit over a year. I'd landed a great job right out of college that I hated. Every second of it was misery. I was just, I think I was trying to prove to my dad that I could be someone who deserved his respect. Would that I, of course, could have simply settled for his love. Because soon after that time, all of that, that change, he, he died. Just, just like that, he was gone. 
blink of an eye. I was 22 years old. And the day that he died, I learned that that marriage was a, a lie. I, I learned about that on the same day that he died. I lost my father and my marriage in the span of about eight hours in one day. Two weeks later, my best friend at work, my only friend at work, Daryl, um, two weeks later from my father's death, Daryl, he also died from suicide. My life completely came apart like a tapestry that falls into, into just a pile of threads and ribbons. But it is common in this country, and I don't want to make the case that what happened to me was somehow special. There's nothing special about my apocalypse. This is something that happens to young men in this country all the time. But in any case, when we're in a place of despair like that, we imagine that we are alone. I was in a place of total isolation and despair, and yet I wasn't alone. God was there. I don't have a whole lot to say about that, because even after reflecting on it for two decades, all I can say of that moment was that Someone else was there, and I know it was God. So I did choose in that moment to live a very different life from the one I'd been living. And now, at the age of 40, I can look back and say, easy for me to say. I didn't have anybody else's fate or fortune in my hands. I had only my own. You've lost everything, and you have no one. It is, in fact, a simple matter of choosing the life that you want to live. I uh, dedicated my life to Jesus Christ. And I basically abandoned my pursuit of American manhood by American standards. I walked away from the phantom of my dead father's respect and I dedicated myself simply to serve the poor and the weak and the hurting and the injured, and do all of this through the Church of Jesus Christ, whatever form that took. So in that dark and terrifying moment, there was an unburdening. I finally knew what I was supposed to do. I had been, up to that point in my brief young life, working on a building, as the song goes, working on a building. I think I was working on a very American building, I'd erected this scaffolding and uh, was called uh, a career and baptized it in the name of entrepreneurship, capitalism, the American dream. And I wholeheartedly believed at the time that when I cut the ribbon on that project, my dad was going to be there to congratulate me, tell me how much he respected me. And he was gone now. The water of my life rose up and it just swept all that stuff away. I learned that I was something else. Or I should say I remembered. We just talked about remembering Jesus. I remembered 
that there was still a little boy underneath all of that stuff that had happened who was good and kind and sweet and deeply loved by God. I see him now in my own little boy. I see the boy who I'd forgotten that I was. I chose, in a sense, to decide to make Jesus Christ my father in the absence of my biological father. And I began to go to him for advice and attempt to earn his respect and to glory in his love for me. When I had confusing questions in my life that any sane young man would simply call their father, God, I remember the direct line to his office, 942-7400. It was back before we had uh, uh, to use area codes to call people. I could pick up any phone in the city, 942-7400, and the phone on his desk would ring. You know the day that he died? I, that was the first thing I did. I'd never done a funeral. I didn't know how to organize a funeral. So I instinctively called my dad. I picked up the phone, dialed 942-7400. What the hell am I supposed to do? And it wasn't until his voicemail picked up that I remembered who had died that day and that he wasn't going to be there to help me figure out how to sort this out. Now I turned to Jesus Christ to be my father in that time. The things that he says can come across as very harsh to us. Today he says, you have to pick up a cross. You have to deny, you have to deny yourself. And you have to lose your life for my sake. Um, it's not that we need to decide to hate life. He doesn't call us to asceticism. But that we can't keep it. We can only invest it. And that if I build, if I try to build my life on the rock of myself, on this absolutely ridiculous notion that I'm self-made, that anyone in this world is somehow self-made or independent, if I try to do that, I will gain the world and lose everything. Had I not learned to let go of the pursuit of my dead father's respect, my life would have been invested in chasing a ghost, I think. And I did learn about the danger of that life that I'd been tricked into believing was my destiny. That's my greatest fear for the Generation Z for the young people who are younger than me, because I see so many of them talk about, you know, the hustle and uh, the gig economy and the ways to make money and these sorts of things. Um, that's not their destiny. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So I'll learn how to carry the cross, Lord. And the way of Jesus Christ is, the, is, is a path to the water of life. Remember that Christianity is not fire insurance. Jesus did not come to earth to get you into heaven. That was not his purpose. And his purpose was not to offer himself up as a sinless sacrifice for the awfulness that we know in our lives. He came 
as he says, to show us the way to a life for the ages and the kingdom of God. That's what he came to do. There's a sermon um, that I'm going to read from briefly. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's by an Anglican preacher, Robert Hawker. Uh, He wrote a sermon called Count the Cost. And in it, he talks about the teaching of Jesus Christ. It says, if you're going to build a tower, don't you sit down and count the cost? This is what was asked of me in that very dark place. Hawker preached these words 250 years ago. And he preached the story of my journey, this sermon, 250 years ago. When he said, see that your foundation be really fixed on Christ. He said, because if so, it must have been previously sought for. You you were digging deep into the natural state in which you were born. Jesus must have been first determined to be necessary and precious before the building of any soul was made to rest upon him. And when found, unless the whole building rests entirely upon him, it will totter. Oh, it is blessed to make Christ the all in all of our spiritual temple. Make him first in every point of order. Make him first in every point of strength. Make it him to bear the weight of the whole building. Blessed to make him the cement in our life. In one harmonious, regular proportion, every part of the building. And then blessed to bring forth the cornerstone of the building. By his strength and glory, crying grace and grace upon it. Or more simply put by that old spiritual, you can have this whole world. Just give me Jesus. When we decide to make Jesus Christ the absolute foundation of our life and the mortar that binds the bricks of our life together, when we decide to accept his absolute authority in our lives, when we decide that he's going to be the rock on which we're going to build the temple of our bodies, our families, our homes, our communities, our nation, and our world, we cannot fail. But the things that he's asking us to do are countercultural, and they are at odds with the iron hand of the market, and sometimes they are at odds with the nation that we're born into, and sometimes they are at odds with the things that the marketplace of the world tells us we ought to be worried about. Because Jesus does not promise us a life without pain. He doesn't promise us a life of perfect security. He doesn't promise us a life without grief. A life without suffering. And He certainly doesn't promise us that we're going to be loved by everybody. As much as we'd want that. Instead, He promises us a life for the ages. A life that is righteous and good in the eyes of God. That there will be stumbling and confusion. Valleys of doubt, dismay, but a good foundation. Scandalo. If the waters rise, 
in our life, and they will. And if the tower we're building is damaged, the foundation is strong. He'll remain. He preaches these these same words to himself today. Peter says to him, God, Peter says to him, his best friend says to him, you can't do this thing that you say you're doing. They're going to kill you. I don't want you to die, Lord. You're my rabbi. Peter said this to him before. At the transfiguration, Peter said, we'll just stay here. We don't have to go and do all that stuff that you're talking about. We're safe here. Today, Peter says to him, Lord, just stop. Put that out of your mind. We don't have to go to Jerusalem, Lord. God forbid that they should kill you, Lord. And Jesus says to him, Get behind me, you deceiver. Get behind me, you tempter. Not because he hates Peter. And not because Peter's evil. Peter is asking him to do the most reasonable thing. The sensible thing. Don't go and... These people are... They're going to hurt you, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me. For you are a stumbling block to me. And I think so many of us imagine a stumbling block. We imagine a path and then there's a brick or something. We trip and we fall and whatever. The Greek is skandalos. Skandalos, it's actually the same as the root of the word scandal. It really means a snare, a trap. Ancient peoples in this part of the world would have known how to build snares from childhood. That's how they caught a lot of their food, was with snares and traps and things like that. And we see snares referenced throughout the whole Bible. But Jesus is saying to Peter quite literally today, you are becoming a snare to me, a temptation. How tempting it must have been for Jesus Christ to step into that snare and to do what Peter said and to simply teach and be a rabbi. Live with his disciples, his followers. His message was obviously and clearly resonating with thousands of people. He was doing well. Why not let that be it and call it good, Jesus? And let the binds of that snare wrap around you and keep you out of Jerusalem where you will surely die. For what? And Peter is probably imagining the crucifixes lining the road to Jerusalem. All the way from Rome, thousands and thousands of criminals hanging on nameless crosses. Hung there by Roman soldiers who don't even speak their language. Why? Why would you put yourself on one of those crosses, Jesus? Peter imagining his his Lord's death and other anonymous body hanging on a cross. A life that could have been something wasted in the pursuit of telling the truth to people in power. And Jesus says to him, you have become a temptation and a snare. After um, a few seasons had passed in my life, after it was ruined and then saved, 
I was sitting at a table of church elders. These are, I, it's the committee on ministry. I'm actually on this committee now. So I'm describing them like old wizards, but I'm just indicting myself. Uh, it's the same team that I'm on now. I was sitting there as a young man, just a few miles from here. And they were going to try to determine whether or not I might be fit to begin the arduous journey toward ordination. Ordination in the Church of Jesus Christ. And they took their role with seriousness, as I do today when seminarians come to the Committee on Ministry. And they asked me some very challenging questions, and it's good that they did. A lot of them, all of them knew, I grew up around here, for God's sake. All of them knew precisely the sort of teenager that I'd been. If they didn't, my high school transcripts and my criminal record made it clear as day for them to see. This guy wants to be ordained? Are you kidding me? This is what the seminaries are cranking out? They wanted to know one thing. Had I found Jesus honestly, really? Was he the foundation of my journey or was I just looking for a job? Was I going to build a life that was set on his foundation or was I going to try again to build my own? Was I looking for a way into that snare of security and comfort? And to their honest questions, at that point, I could give honest questions. I do know him. I've been talking with him every day. He is standing in the exact same place that my father stood. And when I would reach to call my father, I open and I call him. And I open the Bible and I try to figure out what he would have me do. I know how to follow him. And then I said, listen, if you ordain me, this is what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to spend my life trying to do whatever I can alongside the weary and the poor to honor the stranger and the immigrant, to lift up and venerate the poor places of the world, to venerate and consecrate the places in the world that have been degraded and treated with dismay and celebrating God's abundance and abundant love for creation. I described to them the life that I wanted to live, all because I had made a decision to rest the foundation of my life on Jesus Christ, to deny that I owned myself, to deny that a life built on the false promises of capitalism and mammon would somehow lead me through the gates of heaven and into the kingdom of God, but to live only for Jesus Christ. Now, I guess the rest is history. But I will say, and I'll close with this because I've been going on for long enough. (laughs) One of those church elders on that team, as I was leaving the room, he stopped me at the door and he, without a word, he put a small slip of paper into the palm of my hand. It was a note that he'd written uh, during that meeting. And when I got in my car that day, I opened up the note and on it he'd written the words, Nathan, your father, Rusty, is looking down on you right now and he is beaming with pride. So we measure our life against the fears 
of insecurity, the fear of poverty. We count the cost, the cost of a life lived in the company of Jesus and his disciples, that it would be challenging. It might cost us our chance at celebrity. It might cost us our chance at being wealthy, feeling safe every day. It might cost us the love of the world if we go to Jerusalem. But to be able to avoid those snares in the road, the purchase of an immovable foundation upon which to build a good life for the ages, a life of stewardship, a life that is pleasing to our Creator, and a life that when compared to the original cost is of immeasurable profit. And so we consider the foundation. And as we prepare for this new program year together that starts next week, we are going to be working on a building. We'll be working on a building. It won't just be this one. It'll be a Holy Ghost building with no snares. Do the whole thing for our Lord. For our Lord alone. Amen.